listeners, Amanda here. I wanted to share with you a great opportunity from our sponsor. Check out the upcoming Virtual License Scrum Master for Nonprofits course offered by Agile and Nonprofits. The course starts on July 27, 2020, in just five mornings from the comfort of your own desk. With the support of the D.H. Leonard Consulting Team, you'll become a licensed Scrum Master. Visit their website, agileandnonprofits.com. Greetings. I'm Kimberly Hayes-Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Season 3 of, of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo bringing you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, and fundraising. It's also a very real possibility that we will break into song, mm-hmm. talk about pie, Yum. now I'm hungry, um, or refer to you, dear listeners, as y'all. Yep. And we hope all y'all will subscribe to the Fundraising Heyday podcast. This podcast is brought to you by our season three sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Hey, don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. Just a quick note before we get into today's wonderful interview. It was recorded via Skype, so do not adjust your dials. Nothing bad is happening. You're just getting a technological experience. Yeah, you are. Kimberly, I am super excited about the interview we have lined up today. Aren't we both? Uh, We'll be talking with Mark Pittman, CEO of the Concord Leadership Group. You may also know him as founder of fundraisingcoach.com and author of books like Ask Without Fear or from his work running the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference. Yes, um, and I've seen that he also loves bow ties. I'm sure we'll get into that later. But um, Mark's the perfect guest (laughs) for discussing all things storytelling In grants, we're told the value of balancing our facts and figures and statistics with stories because, you know, human beings do read our proposals and we want them to be invested and mostly I want them to stay awake. Um, I want them to give money to to do good things. That's my my, uh, motivation. But go ahead. This is true. But most people identify with stories. And storytelling isn't just for grants. As someone who works on grants and fundraising campaigns myself, everything from case statements to donor cultivation calls, I use stories to help people connect to the cause because that's what it's all about in the work that we do. That's true. But we know that storytelling is a word in action thrown around a lot in our field, but that doesn't mean it's an easy thing to do. So that's why we're so glad we have you joining us today, Mark. So welcome. Yay. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I do love bow ties. So thanks for... Yeah, he's a <laughs> And keeping dude. people awake both. I think they uh, <laughs> just hit a lot of high points in that intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> we are here to help. And since this episode is all about storytelling. Would you mind sharing an example of one of your favorite stories in the fundraising field? Because it's a word that's bandied about a lot. And I would love for our listeners to get sort of an on the job or on the podcast kind of experience of what you have in mind when you talk about storytelling. 
Oh, man, that's such an expansive question because my first thought as a fundraising trainer and leadership coach is to use stories to talk about how to improve your ask. But that's not, but for uh, for people that are listening, uh, one of the biggest mistakes I think people make in storytelling with fundraising is that, well, I don't have the good stories. Those people over there with the puppies or the kittens or those people with the old people or those people with the little kids or those people with the conservation land or those people saving historical society has it, but not me. There's always mm-hmm. this grass is always oh. greener sort of thing. Mark, um, I, Mark, I write that? grants. I write, I write grants for to build roads. It, sometimes that's really yeah. hard to tell a story about why we need this road. So I, yes. a, although yes. it's in Atlanta, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy. A pothole, right. It, yes. I've driven through Atlanta. I can see why that would be pretty <laughs> Just that would really grip people. The problem would be really real. <laughs> uh, so one of the one of my um, clients was bemoaning his lack of ability of finding any good story. Uh, there's a good reason for this, and so I'll I'll explain it at the end. But um, we had just gotten. He was a, a rabbi on campus uh, that was trying to tell his his report back to his donors about the impact that their giving had made over Hanukkah. And um, one of the things with stories that's so important is to use it not just for the ask, but definitely for the impact reports. You receipt the people, you thank them, that's good. But then to have some sort of impact, and uh, Adrian Sargent's research is pretty clear that you have to do it within 90 days of the gift. They have, you have about three months to be able to show the donor your money made a difference and that will help with their retention. Well, so he's trying to figure out this, but, and he's seen all these other rabbis in this group, this Chabad outreach group do all these really clever and wonderful stories. And he said, but I don't have any of those. And I knew that couldn't be true because he had a few hundred people show up at his Hanukkah event yeah. on the first night. So there must be something. So I said, well, just tell me about a boring one then. <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, that was totally what? kind of hey. Like, well, it's, this is what happens. Students come. And I knew I was onto something good then because students coming is exactly what is the it? donors aren't experiencing. Right, uh, young right. people showing up for a faith-filled tradition. So uh, he said, well, there was this one kid who had been FaceTiming with his parents and he saw their menorah up in the background while he was FaceTiming and he was saying, I don't have any family here. I really can't do Hanukkah well. And he's, and now I'm starting to get teary eyed because it was just, it, the guy was, the, the rabbi was just sort of like, this is so like normal. But um, he said, yeah, the kid was walking by a campus. And that was, I think, when he started realizing, oh, maybe I'm onto something here. He was walking by campus and he saw our big lit up uh, menorah. Mm-hmm. And then, Forgive me, I'm I'm a goy, I'm a gentile. I don't I, so sometimes I get a little bit of the Yiddish wrong or the Hebrew, but um the menorah there. And so he said, uh he said, and the kid whipped out his phone and FaceTime his parents and said, Mom and Dad, I found him. I found my family. Oh. Right? Oh, right. Yes. So here's the thing that the problem was, I think for the rabbi and for most of us that work in nonprofit causes, is the stuff we do every day is the stuff we do every day. But to the people outside that are donating and supporting us, it's the stuff they couldn't do. And so it's the daily stuff. So one of my things with coaching clients is to really try to help them get to the real core of what's the boring stuff that you take for granted, because that's probably the most magical for your donors. Plus, it's the easiest to talk about because that's happening anyway. You don't have to wait for the big, you know, huge story that you're really impressed by. You can keep it planted in the reality of what's going on. So... That's a wonderful, wonderful story. And it made me think of another point that I know we'll 
probably talk more about a little bit later on, but a lot of people who write grants are very used to, you know, using statistics to tell the story, reporting outcomes, goals, objectives, and all these things. But when I teach grant writing and when Amanda teaches grant writing, we also want to encourage people to connect to those stories and use their writing skills to make them tight and concise and fit in the parameters, but to add that human element of connection. And I think a lot of people who are new to grants think, well, I have all my figures and my numbers, but I don't know if you've ever read a whole lot of grant proposals or been a grant reviewer, but that can get pretty dry. And even if they (laughs) are building roads that change people's lives and help them get to jobs or, or buses that get people to hospitals or whatever it is they're doing, I think a lot of that human or um, personal deep connection can get lost. And so I think that's just an important point to hold up for folks who are also writing grants and feeling like, well, I don't have time for that or that doesn't fit in. I think it's pulling those telling details because I can already tell you, I'm remembering the the student FaceTiming with the menorah right. in the background. It's like, that's like, you don't need the whole, and one day it was snowy and a young student was trying to find <laughs> his way. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, you know what? We can build using technology to build connection with um, people who are finding it harder to access their communities for religious experience. Well, and just his line, I found my people. Isn't yep. that ultimately yeah. what every yeah. nonprofit's trying know. to do? Ugh, that's so, yeah. So the other part with this, though, uh, for, for in defense of your listeners who might be feeling like, but the statistics are what matters. That's yeah. what everybody's <laughs> asking for. And I think that's one of the problems that um, if you only answer the forms that the grantors, the funders are asking you to, you will be slanted to statistics because that's all they know how to ask for. Sure, and that's yes. what they're measuring on. But it's your job as the grant writer to also inject the human into those stories. And Absolutely. there's a couple of different ways to look at doing that. But I think that's just, I don't think it's necessarily obvious because a lot of people that get into grant writing, not pros like you guys, but a lot of people would get into it and just kind of go to the grant foundation directory, look for the foundations that look like they have a, a similar thing and then put out a whole bunch of kind of spray and pray sort of approach, put out a whole <laughs> bunch of different applications and hope something comes in. Um, oh. I answered their questions. Why didn't they see the magic that we're doing? Well, we have to take extra effort to show them. Yeah. Well, and you're kind to call us pros, but we're there because we've been at it a long time. I'm pretty sure my first couple of grants were. Maureen. <laughs> um, yes. I'm speaking of myself, not of you. Oh, no, oh, one, of my quotes, one of my leadership quotes that I keep tweeting out every once in a while is that something to the effect of experts are only people who have been around long enough to make all the mistakes <laughs> or make That's more right. mistakes than everybody else. Yeah, oh, yeah. I get that. Absolutely. So, well, I don't think I first realized storytelling was such a significant component of our field until I was really well into my career. Kind of like Kimberly said at the yep. beginning, you just don't know what you don't know. And I'll be honest, what really convinced me was I had a friend finally tell me, she's like, you know, you are a creative person. You're a writer. You tell stories. And I, at first I was like, well, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm a grant writer. I'm not a writer. I don't write novels. I don't write poetry. I'm not Stephen King. And but she was like, no, really, you're, you are a writer and you, you tell stories. And it just, it kind of dawned on me. And I mean, I was several years into my career. So yeah, sure. when did, for you working on the foundation side, the donor side of things, when did that realization hit you that you were a storyteller? Um, I don't know. I don't know when it really hit me. It was so kind of, sometimes I'm a little thick, so I need multiple pummelings. And then it finally hits me. Oh, yeah. But I remember my second job I was at a boarding school. And I was the alumni director having not gone to that school. 
So that was okay. a little bit weird uh, because usually they had hired alum to be the alumni director of this of the boarding school. Sure. Uh, and so one of the things that I it, I found out through the course of this that I can get into a culture pretty quickly and speak the dialect of the people around me in a credible way. Um, when I was an exchange student in Sweden, I picked up the language in six months, so they didn't know I was American. They thought I was Danish because I still spoke funny, but I wasn't like American <laughs> nice. funny. Wow. Uh, so it's literal dialect. But um, yeah, the, the Chabad group, they they I've so much love with this this group. I lived in Israel for a year. I studied his you know, Judaism and all Second Temple Judaism, but um, they they forget that I'm Gentile until I. <laughs> skip over a word or something because I throw the Yiddish back at them and I have a lot of fun and res deep respect for the heritage and the tradition. So that all of that is part of what being in this boarding school was like for me too. Of I have a deep respect for the tradition that was there and I kept hearing different names being recognized, uh, being mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, Floyd and Eleanor Johnson and um, all the different people were being recognized or being referred to and there would also often be this pause that I found out later was just a natural human response of, are you, are you my tribe or are you not? Because if you're my tribe, you've got that short code. That was a little uh -huh. bit of a, you know, I just threw that in there and I don't have to explain it, but if you're not, I'll be friendly, but I'll have to explain it and it's going to be a lot more work for me. So what I ended up doing was I went, I realized that I was cataloging these stories, but I didn't know the people. And they were still alive, which was huge. This That was a huge gift for me. So I did an 11, 10 or 11 state road trip through um, the East Coast Seaboard visiting alum and mostly these iconic faculty members that had profoundly impacted students' lives. Uh, and it was, it was at I thought that was just natural. I thought as an, our job as a school is to get people out of the school living productive lives. And as an alumni director, my job is to go to them and see how well are you living? Well, that's not how alumni director offices are work. Often they're all about getting people back to campus. We just get them back to campus. And so they never leave. Um, and so there was this independent school magazine at the time that got, oh, well, Case Currents actually, they picked it up also. Case and this mm -hmm. other independent school magazine, both were like, whoa, you're, on, you're doing a road trip? And it was around that time that I said, well, yeah, my job as a fundraiser is I'm a keeper of the lore. <laughs> I, I love that. Gandalf or you know, <laughs> something like that where I'm telling – I keep the stories and I hold them in a sacred trust and I'm able to share the story back to the donor of this is the impact of the students' lives or to the students, this is what donors are doing to make it so you can be here or faculty, this is how you're, you're still having all of this uh, – your time with the student is being – just continuing to compound on their on their life experience. You know, I get to be that person that catalogs the stories, not catalogs them, because I'm not that kind of I'm more of I'm if you could see me, I'm sort of more of holding them in in this like sort of I don't know space. Loving embrace. <laughs> Loving embrace. Thank you very much. Thanks for bailing me out there because I yeah. was losing my analogies. But that's <laughs> that's when it became, wow, we're a keeper of the lore. We get to do that. And it's in those magic spots of remembering to tell the story back and forth. Like when I was at a hospital, I would go, I was the physical or the face of the organization. I was the one that was at the community things because everybody else was so heads down at the hospital. The marketing person had so many deadlines to meet and the CEO had so many employees to take care of and patients and stuff. So I was out at Rotary and all these other things. And I, I remember just one time at Rotary hearing somebody say, I got great care there last week. And it was this nurse in particular that was amazing. So I went back to the nurse and, and just, I don't know why I hadn't done this. I don't know why it took me a few years to figure this out. But I said to her, you know, I was just talking to this family 
And they told me, and I asked, could you know, is it all right if I tell her? Because I wanted to get HIPAA out of the way. And she he said, oh, yeah, definitely tell her. So I told her, and a, a switch flipped. From then on, she became this really encouraging person to me. Like, have you talked to this other family? Have you talked to this family? I was just talking to this family, and they said I should share your name, uh, their name with you. She became this. It was it was no longer a black box of we take care of people and we never hear from them again until they're here sick again, but it was this kind of virtuous loop of I took care of people. Mark heard they they liked my work. They, they cared about what I did. And while there are other people that may care about what I do, and it became, it was just a neat swapping of stories that went on, uh, in a way that hadn't happened in the two and a half years that I've been there. It was really funny. And it was a great, a great organization to work with. People loved it, but stories transformed that too. Yeah. Well, and I think too, your whole comparison of yourself to Gandalf, that just shows the power of story. Cause as soon as you said that, I just had this vision of your epic quest and i think we were in the shire yes, i think we there were, were some hobbits maybe some elves i'm not really clear but we're back now but thanks to you we were able to take that little journey so that's yes. just the power of stories I love it. but also mark i'm sure you know there are people who remain skeptical about this power of storytelling and i saw on your website you have several um references as to research and other things that have been done in the field to actually prove the power of storytelling. Is there just one um, bit of data that you would like to mention to interest our data-driven people who may be our listeners today? You might have some data-driven people on the call. Yeah. What? <laughs> Absolutely. What? So um, I get to speak to uh, the Joint Commission, which is the people that are, do most of the accrediting of hospitals in North America, or in the United States anyway. And then also I got to take this to another medical school. Um, both times talking to researchers, statistical mm -hmm. researchers that are the the value of their job and their work is that they have concrete statistical verifiable research statistics to show. I don't even know I'm running out of words, but they that this is their <laughs> this is how they prove their worth and it's clear to them. But for the rest of us, it's like a board member, and I'm a board member, looking at a budget sheet. I don't know if this is good or bad. I know the bottom number if it adds up or not, but I don't know. Tell me. Tell me some of the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, so what I shared with them was a study done by Deborah Small, Paul Slovic, and George Lowenstein. And if you Googled their names, it's usually get Paul Slovic is usually given the, the credit for it for whatever reason. But one of the they did a series of studies to see just how does this how does the storytelling thing affect uh, giving? And so the first one they did, what most of us try to do is they clubbed people over the head with statistics. <laughs> there are millions of people dying of starvation and there are thousands, millions of people yep. in this place and there's yep. all these families. And and it's it's yeah, it's really like we're trying to beat people into submission with statistics. Um and they gave, they had given a certain number, they did something, students did something and they got some money back and then they were read the story. Um, so they had money that they had to get, they could give if they wanted to. And what people did for that, they gave a dollar, an average of dollar 14 cents for the getting clubbed over the head with statistics. Um, then they had a separate one where it was a story of this girl named Rokia who lived in this family and she was experiencing starvation and her community had certain things that were going on um, and a gift would help her. And um, people gave twice as much to that, more than twice as much. They gave $2.38. And they thought, okay, so statistics do one thing, but the story does twice as well as statistics. Maybe we can combine the two, which is my bent. I, I, like the analytical and I want to really please the analytical people. And I also want to please the people people. So I want to combine the two together. Mm 
And so they had one about Rokia and the statistics that are around people like Rokia. And it suppressed giving back down to almost the original level, the low level. It was $1.43 on average. Wow. So, I, it's shocking to me. Yeah. Yes. So the big takeaway, oh don't, don't look at the dollar amounts. And I, I would recommend everybody test this for themselves to find out for their own groups. But exactly. but if you know DISC personality behavior studies or anything like that, you know they're analytical people and they're people people. And I would have thought we'd want to try to hit both in, an, in a letter so that we could get both the analytical and the relational. And that's not the case. Um, the analytic, Putting any amount of statistics in a letter suppresses giving. Uh, and bringing out, and it's got to be a. The story needs to be one person. It's not a group of kids that are now accepted. It was Rokia that was accepted, and we find this time and time again with the nonprofit storytelling conference alum too, as they can whittle away from their urge to impress people by the big pictures and the happy smiling faces, and get down to one person. People can really understand that. And is it all right if I go a little bit, like just drive drive this point home for people? Bring it home. Okay, Start so here's the thing. Years and years and years, uh, researchers are saying there's a problem with the Syrian refugee crisis. There's a problem. There, there are these there are statistics. They had statistics for all the Syrians that were being refugees, being you know removed from home. But it wasn't until I think it's Alan's body, the little boy, oh, washed the little up boy on the beach. beach. Yes. When Al, when his body, that picture of him alone, this poor kid. That's when it crystallized the world. And you know what happened? Those researchers got upset, like we usually do. Of We've been saying this, where have you been? As opposed mm-hmm. to going with that emotion and going with the energy and just saying, great, now you got it. Let's, let's make hay while the sun's shining. They started saying, well, we've been, they started <laughs> justifying themselves. We've been saying this for years. Why haven't you, where have you been? Why are you guys, all these other groups making money now? It wasn't that. It was just that one person one child was able to crystallize what people have been trying to say for a long time. Um, so uh, the story, the studies are, there's a lot of other research around that. Robert Cialdini has a lot in his influence books, but I found the Deborah Small, Paul Slovic and George Lowenstein, I call it like a victimized individual versus an individual individual or something like that. And that's statistical victim and an individual victim. I think they call it, I don't like their mm-hmm. language, but if those are all good keywords to search out that study. And I think it's also important to point out, too, that this research was done with individual donors. Right. So we're not suggesting that if you are primarily writing grants that you go, what's <laughs> with you and your questions? <laughs> science is on my no. side because science will not be on your side when yes. it comes to the award letter. However, I think it does build that clear <laughs> and compelling case to insert that those kinds of telling details and story elements into your grant right so just don't want there to be any confusion no i appreciate that so one of the it is hard it can be hard challenging for grant writers uh frank velasquez jr has been having some great success i believe in new mexico with this he came to the storytelling conference and he and he was a new executive director who was willing to just kind of try stuff and Mm -hmm. so what he did was he took the whole storytelling arc of a person going through the process and wrote it out the process of his jobs nonprofit um and he wrote it kind of told the story with the who's the protagonist what's the problem um what are the struggles that they faced how did they overcome it with our help and then was able to slice them up into t- typical storytelling parts and insert those where it was appropriate in whatever application he was he mm-hmm. was looking at so you might tell the solution part at the beginning not at the end but it's the story of this one person you know this is how you know the job's 
New Mexico does this, this, and this, and this, like we did for Carlos when he was um, able to successfully hold down a job after having job hop for months mm-hmm. before us. Um, and then he'd go back to Carlos in another part in the job where it was more appropriate to have the sort of, who are the people you serve? Um, so he would try to keep that story thread in there, but it wasn't the same plot you'd see if you went to see a movie or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah. still the same idea, the same, the the premise of using a powerful story to get you through all those component parts of a grant. So. In the midst of all the statistics and everything else that a donor, a donor, a funder has every right to ask whatever they want to ask, even if it's a pain to us because it's their money. Um, and so, yeah, he was able to then still work his story thread through it, even though he was answering the questions that they, whatever, for whatever reason they felt were important to, for them. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I was about to ask next, what's the best way to incorporate all that in a nonprofit setting? But what a perfect example of mm-hmm. how he told the story and just figured out where in a grant application to put it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's probably other ways too. Well, and there's also, so there's something else that we tend to screw up on. And sorry, I don't know if that's okay to say on this podcast, but. Uh, yes. <gasps> I, I am know. shocked. I am <laughs> okay, watching my pearls. Oh my. Phew, I guess I'm with my people. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> What some I think we often think that our the story that we think is important is the one that everybody needs to hear, and it tends not to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, not only do we have to find the identifiable person, like the kid with the FaceTiming the menorah, but also we have to um, really know what our donors are interested in. Because no matter how much it's important to us to move a needle in a certain way, we need to get people on our side. And so one of the ways to do that is a thing called the rule uh, the rule of threes, but there are like a billion rule of threes. This was one by Kim Crisco. It's on uh, fundraisingcoach.com in the article section. I, I wrote up about it. Um, where you identify your perfect audience. Uh, we, I call her Jennifer because that's what the, my first membership-based radio station had. It was a, They had Jennifer as their perfect audience. They knew all the details wow. about how much she makes what, um, where she lived, what her interests were. And there, I could go into the whole process, but if you have that persona so clear, then you can take a separate piece of paper and just write down all the different things that you're already doing, including all the cool things that you think are cool, but then all the things like paying utility bills and having a stable adult in kids' lives on a regular basis and paying paychecks to the, you know, having employees that are active in the community, all sorts of stuff, like everything, not just the stuff you think is is interesting to a donor. And then you go back to Jennifer and look at your list of stuff that you do on a a daily, weekly, monthly basis, and you circle the three that are most interesting to her. And that helps you immensely. So now when you're doing a newsletter, you don't have to think about what do I write now? You know, I have theme A, theme B, and theme C. You know, interest one, interest two, interest three. Those are the three interests. I'm always going to be looking for a story for that. And when you're going to the programs, people, you're not saying, tell me a story. You're saying, hey, could you tell, since the last time we talked, what was a good story of a, a stable adult in a kid's life in our community? So much more specific, and it's so much easier to harvest stories that way when you're asking someone something, and then you start training them. If you keep coming to them, they'll start thinking, oh, Susie's going to come to me and ask me for a stable adult in kid's life story. <laughs> so I, I better yeah. get on the stick. That's yeah, or I'll, you should be, maybe I'll be more aware of them as they happen, yeah. And that also has um, not only for sort of the front end of either building connections and seeking that first donation, but also, as you said earlier, coming back and reporting on impact 
whether it's to individual donors or whether it was what happened to folks who gave money and attended this gala, where did their money go? Or in grant reports. Yeah. Hey, here's how, here's here are a couple of stories about what happened in the in lives because you gave this grant. So we just tested with an appeal to a school uh, to a hospital that had never done a, a done letters before, and so she, they really wanted to do health prevention education stuff. Mm-hmm, that uh, sounds exciting. Is, oh, it's so sexy and so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to give to that. It's sort of like everybody wants to buy an aspirin. They don't want to buy uh, a vitamin. I mean, like they right. want it to, pain to go away, but they don't want to prevent right. it. So, and I have, a, I could wax. You know, we did capital campaigns where the bulk of the capital campaign was with the smallest part. The millions of dollars right. that came in was for the emergency department, not for the eighty percent of the project, which was the health. You know, we funded the whole thing, but we had to sell the emergency department. Right. So, the health stuff. So there was a health one, and then there was a. Um, the travel voucher one where there was this woman, Gladys, who uh, her family had moved away and her car, you know, and, and her husband had died just 18 months before in this rural setting. Um, and she could, her doctor just told her she has to come for weekly checkups now as part of her follow-up care, but she doesn't have a car. Uh, would right. you give to make it so that she could get a travel voucher and get the transportation she needs? Well, um, I haven't heard the statistics on how much they both raised, but I did have a, when I was on site last time at the hospital, they said, yeah, we had people calling us up saying she could take Gladys today. If she, you know, they're all volunteering oh. to take Gladys. I mean, they oh. so identified with this, this woman who's sticking around in her community, even though her family's left and they really wanted to pitch in and help. So I knew we get a good story. I'll love to see, and I'll, I'll let you guys know if we've, uh, you know, how much money was raised <laughs> through either one of them, but we're, we're already dividing up who's going to go get Gladys, but Amanda has a, a bigger car, so I think Gladys would like to ride with us. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the stories are so important, and uh, and they're often not the stories that we, we think are the ones that are going to be magical to the people that are supporting us. True that. And so um, if folks are listening and they just can't get enough of that storytelling stuff, I know you were one of the founders of the Storytelling Conference, and I know it's every year and it moves around the country. But if you wanted to just give folks a quick overview of uh, where they might find out more information and what they could expect, I think it could be helpful. Sure. It's a pretty boring uh, URL for it. It's nonprofitstorytellingconference.com. I love Uh, it. So, and we're going to be at the time of this recording, we'll be in Chicago next, uh, and that will be in October. Um, but we do, we go to San Diego, we bounce between East Coast and West Coast every year or, or Mid Coast. So, San Diego uh, last year, Chicago next, San Diego again. And I think we're going to be, I don't remember where we're going to be in a few years, but we have, we just broke over a thousand attendees that are there uh, last fall. And wow. People are bringing, it's the only conference I've been part of where people go once just to test it because they're not really sure if this is going to work. And then they get so like enamored and they see the results so quickly that they bring their executive director or their boss the next year. And then they bring their entire staff. We had a whole or nonprofit uh, marketing and fundraising group from uh, Norway come. Uh, we've oh, regularly wow. had international people come. But then there, yeah, there are people that are bringing 10 and 12 staff members at a time to this so that everybody has the same common al- common experience and uh, vocabulary. And it's a, one of the fir- only places that I've found out, we didn't know that this happens, but grant writers, fundraisers, marketers often have different spheres. Like there's the, there are fundraising conferences, there are grant conferences, and there are marketing conferences, but this is a place where they're all coming together 
and the executive directors and board members with the leadership uh, because it's centered on story, which touches all of those. And so it's one of the places where people are actually able to break down silos because nice. they're talking about the impact of the nonprofit. I'm super excited. It's so much, it's such it's fun. We're like a seventh or eighth year now. Yeah, we, we can't tell that you're excited at all, Mark. You seem like a pretty <laughs> laid back kind of dead I know, you should guy. see me when I'm really excited. <laughs> Uh, well, it's totally on our bucket list to attend that. So, and why, might we recommend Atlanta as a fabulous East Coast location? Mm-hmm. For, just to right. them all yeah. over. <laughs> that would be fun. That, that's not far from where I live here in Greenville. So that would be great. See? Yeah, awesome. Well, I, we just wanted to thank you uh, so much for sharing your stories and drawing us together through the power of storytelling today. And um I have found it personally very useful, not only in my fundraising and grant writing activities, but it's something that I like to pass on in a small way when I teach folks about grant writing or if I'm reviewing their grants or reviewing their um, donor letters. But I thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your super engaging style to this very important topic. Thank you. Um, Apologies to any of your listeners that listen at two speed. Like I listen to most of my podcasts at two speed because I, I become a little bit, it's hard to hear me. I realize I talk really quickly, but. I suddenly think you're like Minnie Mouse. Yeah. <laughs> Elvin and the Chipmunks. Maybe we'll, put, maybe we'll put a little disclaimer. Y'all don't roll this to two. You're not going to, you're going to miss it. You're going to no, miss some really stuff. mean it this time. It's not really, just, really we do. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me as a guest. Man, what a great interview that was. And I must say, Mark talks really fast. So he wasn't kidding about don't listen to this podcast on speed 2.0. <laughs> Point well taken. <laughs> now, Kimberly, you and I are such readers and book nerds. It's always fun to talk about storytelling, no matter what the medium. I concur. And it's also nice to have a fellow fundraiser who feels the same way. So if you can't get enough of that Mark stuff, here's where you can find him. You can follow him on Twitter at... Mark, M-A-R-C-A Pittman, P-I-T-M-A-N. So Mark A. Pittman is his handle on Twitter. You can check out his blogs and other information at concordleadershipgroup.com and fundraisingcoach.com. Or he has a monthly training called the nonprofitacademy.com and you can find him there. And maybe we'll see some of y'all at this year's nonprofit storytelling conference, which is in Chicago in October, because either this year or next year, we got to get there. It's going to happen. I, I want to be there. So remember, there is no specific college degree in grant writing or fundraising, but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. Guess what? What? We love for this podcast to be part of your professional development line Absolutely. And you know what? If you just can't get enough of that Amanda Kimberly stuff, follow us on Twitter at Funding Heyday. That's H-A-Y-D-A-Y at Funding Heyday. And we'll see you out there. Thank you again to our season three sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to learn more. Now stay tuned for upcoming episodes this season, including our next one about the differences between subrecipients and contractors when it comes to your federal grant awards. And you may be thinking, ooh, that sounds boring. Does going to jail sound boring to you? <laughs> 
No, no, it does not. It sounds horrible. <laughs> so let us keep you out of jail. We hope you'll join us in two weeks. Bye now. Bye. Bye.